Well, I had the opportunity to spend a few hours fishing a couple weeks ago when we were in Montana. I'm going to show you a picture uh, of where I was fishing. This is one of my favorite spots on the Gallatin River, just a few miles uh, downstream from Big Sky. I don't know if you've ever had the, the spiritual experience of wading into a Montana trout stream. But one of the things that you quickly find out, and, and you can't really even see it in this picture, is that looks can be deceiving. Now, when I was there, the Gallatin was flowing somewhere around 300 cubic feet per second. So that means 300 cubic feet of water pass a given point in the river every single second. Now, that's pretty low. This same river uh, at peak runoff can be at six, seven, eight thousand cubic feet per second. So this is 300 right now. But these low and cold, and the water was really cold, water conditions can sometimes be the most dangerous for the angler. And there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, one is that uh, during this time of year, you get these ice shelves on the side of the river. And not only are they, are they slick, but they can at times make access to the river pretty difficult. And they're, they're prone to crack and to break. They're, they're unstable. The other reason that fishing can be dangerous is that you see how low the water is, and you can easily underestimate power. I'll never forget being on a fishing trip with a first-time fly fisherman about 30 miles downriver from here, closer to Bozeman. Uh, we were wading in a stretch of the river, and he had a fair amount of fishing experience, but in Minnesota, in lakes, and never in fast-moving water. And so it was a braided stretch of the river where the river splits into multiple channels, and we, and we wanted to cross over to uh, across a side channel to get to the main channel. Uh, and having a little more river navigation experience, I walked way downstream to a slower but deeper section of the river, but he was busy fishing in this side channel, and then after a, a little while, he looks up and he sees me fishing in the main channel, so he wants to get across there, and so he just sets off across this side channel, and he got about halfway across and realized his mistake. It's easy to underestimate the power of water, fast-moving water especially. In a slow-moving stretch, you can wade chest-deep and have firm footing and be fine. But with fast-moving water, it can be much more of a problem. He didn't account for not only the force of the water, but for what was on the bottom of the river. 18-inch deep side channel with fast-moving water, but on the bottom was bowling ball size moss-covered boulders. Made him finding a firm place to stand impossible. And he quickly discovered this as he did the river dance for a little while and then ended up on his back sort of flailing and, and struggling, wrestling with the water before eventually flopping his way to the shore 20 yards uh, downstream completely exhausted, waders full of water, uh, his friend laughing at him. Our scripture text for today, on this second Sunday of Lent, ends with the Apostle Paul emphasizing the importance of, of a firm, solid place to stand. As I read our text, I want, to, I want you to see how Paul builds uh, toward his encouragement for these early Christians to stand firm starting in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. This is God's word to us. 
Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. God, I pray that the words that I speak will be your words, that the thoughts that we consider and ponder and things that we believe would glorify you. Lord, create faith today where there is none. Strengthen faith where it's weak. So we entrust this time to you when we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the overarching themes of Paul's letter to the Philippian church can be found and traced back to chapter 1, verse 27. If you have your Bible, you might want to get it out. We're going to move back and forth a little bit through uh, this, the entirety of this letter. Chapter 1, verse 27 says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are, and then hear these words, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so here, in the end of chapter 3, in beginning of chapter 4, Paul's reiterating what he's already talked about, his desire for these Christians, that they would stand firm. Verse 1 says, stand firm in the Lord in this way. But when we hear a phrase like that, like in this way, it should always pique our interest. What, what is the in this way that Paul is referring to as he encourages these Christians to stand firm? How are these first century Christians and how are we today to stand firm in the faith? Let's consider what Paul says. Uh, first, we stand firm by following the example of those who live well. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul encourages those in the congregation to follow his example, to pattern their life after his. And it's helpful to have the context of what he said previously to help us see exactly what he's talking about here. In chapter 3, verse 7, so just before our text for today, Paul said this. He said, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he goes on to say that I may know Christ and know the power of his resurrection. And then verse 13 of chapter 3, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I Press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God 
in Christ Jesus. So, so Paul has just sort of laid out for them what the Christian life looks like. He's explained his own sense of call and conviction to surrender his life, to abandon his own uh, personal gain, to, to set aside worldly things that were, that were vying for his attention and his affection, to, to consider it all, he uses the word loss for the sake of Christ. And he says, join together in my example. Follow my lead. Find your meaning. Find your significance, your identity in, in Christ and in service to him, rather than in all of the, the temporary and distracting things that this world offers. But when we follow Paul's line of reasoning here, it actually goes back even farther than just Paul's example. We could, if we go back to chapter 2, we see this same uh, theme at work. In chapter 2, Paul says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself. He assumed the form of a servant. He took on the likeness of humanity. And when he had, had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, so who should they look to as an example? Paul says, uh, look at me, follow uh, what I do and the people who do what I do, but really look even farther back. Look to Jesus himself, who, who emptied himself, who became a servant, who humbled himself. Paul says, walk in this way, in this uh, way of, of living. Adopt this attitude, this perspective of life. Now, of course, this uh, forces all of us to, to the cross. When we read these words, we can't help but respond, uh, see, seeing our sin, respond in, in repentance. Because right away we see our own, if, at least if you're like me, you see your own inadequacy. Just hearing these words, I begin to be reminded of how self-focused I am, of how much of my time is spent focused on, on me and my agenda and so we praise God today that our standing before him is not based upon how we can live, but upon the one who lived perfectly in our place. Our salvation rests on the solid ground and firm footing because it was purchased, it was secured, it was guaranteed by the Son of God. It was promised to us by faith. And so as the law works in our lives, as we look at the example of Paul, we look at the example of Christ, we respond in repentance, in turning to the Lord. We respond grateful that our hope, that our hope for eternity rests in Jesus and not on myself, not in how we can live, not in what we can do for him. And so we turn to Paul's example, not to learn how to be saved, not to learn how to make things right with the Lord, but to learn to be servants. To learn to, to follow Jesus well. To learn to reject the wrong things. To learn to, to order and to structure and to prioritize our lives in, in a worshipful way. Uh, back to my, to my fishing story. I, I had much more experience wading across rivers than my friend who was with me. And so I 
scoped out a, a crossing, a path that, that was much uh, better, much safer, much more firm in its footing. As Paul builds toward his encouragement for them to stand firm, he makes it clear, he makes one, one thing very clear, that, that, that standing firm uh, means never standing by yourself. Do you see that in, in the tone of, of this section? The, the Christian faith is never to be understood or conceptualized in isolation. Think about it this way. The entire New Testament is built upon a, a presumption and assumption of one being involved in a Christian community of faith. Uh, the Pew Research Center, some of you are familiar with their uh, research work in American culture. Uh, they reported recently that currently 42% of people who refer to themselves as evangelical Christians gather together in corporate worship less than once per month. Think about that. 42% of those who refer to themselves as evangelical Christians gather together in corporate worship less than once per month. From a biblical perspective, that's, that's unheard of. That's unconscionable. The basic operative foundational assumption of the New Testament is that if you're a believer, that you're together with God's people consistently. It's, it's part of what the Christian life is. The body of Christ isn't the body of Christ if it's not together. You can't read, for example, the book of Acts or Romans or First and Second Corinthians, Ephesians, First Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. You can't read those books without seeing the centrality. All of them speak to the fundamental centrality of the worshipful gathering of God's people in a location. The very context and setting presumes people who are gathering consistently and intentionally. But it's so easy, even for, even for God's people, to be swayed by our culture, right? We're, we're swayed by busyness, by the lies of Western individualism, all of which result in us sidelining what Scripture just assumes to be of greatest importance. The body of Christ is is really a unique entity in our world. Everything in our world is, is segmented. There are very few intergenerational settings today. And that's one of the things that I love about this congregation. On any given Sunday, I have to preach loud so that you can hear me over a couple of the babies who are preaching back at me. And then I have to preach loud so that a couple of you old guys don't fall asleep. And that's, that's beautiful. That's the body of Christ. That's a church family. We need each other. The old need new ideas and new passion. The young need wisdom and experience. The old need fresh eyes and vision. And the young need long-suffering faithfulness. We need the body of Christ. To be a follower of Jesus is to commit yourself not only to him, but to his people, to his church. Stand firm by being together with God's people, by watching those who are walking ahead of us, by paying close attention, by keeping our eyes on those who are living well. Second, we stand firm by identifying the right path. I want you to notice the language that Paul uses throughout this section. It culminates 
in verse 1 of chapter 4 when he tells us to stand firm. But what sets up that imagery that he's using? The translation that I read uses the word live in verses 17 and 18. But if you were to read this in another translation, you might find the word uh, walk. Either translation's good. Paul wrote this letter. He was using a word picture, a, a metaphor. So listen to this in a different translation. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of Christ or the cross of Christ. Now, it's important to recognize live is a really good translation of that word. It's a really good and acceptable way to translate that word. In fact, it might get closer to the actual meaning of what Paul is saying. But it's important and it's helpful to recognize the word picture that Paul is using, the metaphor that he's using when he writes that word. It's, it's a word that means to walk, to go on a walk, to go on a, on a journey. And so he says, focus your eyes on those who walk. Many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So to use Paul's metaphor, it's, it's important for us to identify which path we should walk. To evaluate the terrain that's in front of us. To read the river and know where to cross. And, and so Paul really lays out two paths in our text. And then he describes each of these paths. The first path he labels as uh, that of the enemies of the cross of Christ. Look at verse 18. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live or walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. He gives us four basic descriptors of those who walk this path as enemies of of the cross. But before we get into those, I, I want you to notice the tone with which Paul is writing. This is really important as we read these words. Uh, we, we see it at the beginning of verse 18. I've often told you before and now tell you again, and then this phrase, even with tears. So important to pick up on those clues as we read a passage for how we read the passage. Paul is not Pounding on the pulpit, shouting angrily here. He's saying these words. He's warning them with, with tears. I've often told you before, now I tell you again, even with tears. It's so important. It's also important for us to understand exactly what Paul is saying in regard to those who are enemies of the cross and what they are enemies of. He says that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Think about the significance of that. It's interesting. Uh, the cross is the symbol not only of forgiveness and of Christ's death, but it's, it's at the cross that we know God. It's at the cross that we see God most clearly, that we know him most personally. God proves his love for us at the cross as Jesus took our place. So these enemies for which Paul mourns and Weeps are not enemies in a general sense. They're enemies of the cross, of that proclamation of, of freedom and peace with God in Christ, of what Jesus 
did for you. They're, they're enemies of the fullest revelation of God's love for broken humanity. So what, what does Paul say? How does he describe this first path? At first, he says their destiny is destruction. These enemies of the cross are, are living, teaching, believing, walking in opposition to everything that Christ is about, to everything that he came to accomplish. And, and he begins by explaining the ultimate destination of this path that they're on, the, their end, their destiny, their destination is destruction. And this is a word that could fairly be translated as annihilation or even hell. Eternal separation from God. That's the, the result of this path that Paul describes. He also says uh, their God is their stomach. The people on this path are turned inward. They're focused inside. They're worshiping their own desires and comforts and appetites and urges. Uh, rather than setting us aside and worshiping the Lord, the, the summary of their life is self-worship. And what I've recognized over, over the years in church ministry, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, is that this description is not only true of people out there, but sometimes of people in here. Some people are so enthralled with themselves that they even manage to figure out how to make church about them. They figure out how to leverage their giving and their volunteering and their charisma to make their involvement in the body of Christ actually worship them. Some of you have seen these people at work. It's always on their schedule. It's not sacrificial, whether it's a desire for control or a desire to be seen or a desire to be needed. For many people, the, the summary of actions and decisions in life are, are self-seeking, self-serving. Those on this path, Paul says, worship a God that is within. A God that always serves them. A God that always fits into their timetable and a God that always keeps them comfortable. The third description that he gives us, he says their glory is in their shame. The things that ought to cause them to be ashamed actually fuel their pride. Paul's just previously discussed self-sacrifice for the glory of God, and now we have the opposite. Rather than sacrificing self for God's glory, these people glory in things that should cause them to feel shame. You don't have to look far into our world to see this, to see people revel in the wicked, to see people celebrate things that should be mourned, to see people take pride in things that should cause brokenness and sadness. And then we have this fourth description of those who are on this path, that their mind is set on earthly things. This is the summary statement, wrapping everything together if you're anything like me, this description should hit pretty close to home. It's easy for our minds, for my mind, for my heart to be captivated by the things of this world. It's, it's the default setting of the human nature. We, we can't see over the horizon, right? We, we, we don't have eternal perspective. And so we care most about what's right in front of us, what's affecting us today. Most people spend their entire lives on this path. 
focusing primarily on physical, tangible, material interests. And, and sadly, this is a reality that you see in Christians as well. Things that are eternal take a back seat to things that are earthly. We are enslaved by the tyranny of the urgent. We're intoxicated by the sweet voice of our culture so that we prioritize things that have no true meaning, no ultimate value, and we cast aside the only things that truly matter. Paul's description of this first path is clear, and it should drive us to repentance. And he contrasts it against this second path that we see starting in verse 20. He says, but our, referring to these people, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. At the very core of the Bible is the realization that our hope, that our help comes from the outside rather than from within. Our identity is given from above, not created from within. Notice how he describes this second path. The first description is heavenly citizenship. This is obviously a contrast with the idea of being focused on earthly things. If you are in Christ, scripture says you are a new creation. And part of that is the fact that your citizenship here and now in this world becomes secondary. Our grip on the things of this world loosens because we are so gripped by the things of eternity. This matter of heavenly citizenship is largely a matter of two things, of identity and posture. I want to talk briefly about that. First, identity. We are, we're much more homogenous nowadays than our culture used to be, but uh, some of you remember a time in which uh, Norwegians married Norwegians, Germans married Germans, there were exceptions, but that was the rule. That was the expectation. Why is that the case? Because shared history of, of where we're from, of what has come before us, matters. It, it, it fashions us. It crafts us into who we are. And, and so many of those things, many of those traditions, many, much of that history is significant. Heritage and, and culture matter. And that's especially true for those who, who aren't too far removed from their homeland. Every generation, it gets less and less true. We get more and more homogenous. But uh, some of you still make sausage like good Germans, right? Uh, some of you still make lefse like good Norwegians. That heritage, that history matters. It's important. Another area that we see this is in marriage preparation classes. We spend a lot of time in marriage preparation talking about families of origin. Why? Because we're a product of where we're from. Because where we come from, our family of origin, shapes our expectations. It shapes our understanding of relationships, of communication, our approach to life in almost every area. And, and here's the point. Where we're from plays a significant role in our identity. Even more so than heritage, our citizenship is Critical. As Christians, we have a primary and a secondary citizenship. We are primarily citizens of God's 
kingdom. And this gets to our posture. We could look, for example, at 2 Corinthians or 1 Peter and, and see language by which we understand our relationship as citizens of heaven with our earthly, our secondary citizenship. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that we are ambassadors. So we are citizens of heaven. We're ambassadors sent by Christ, entrusted, and Paul's very specific, entrusted with the message of reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. That is the message that we are sent with. Peter uh, phrases it uh, or presents it a little differently. Peter, in, in, in 1 Peter, uh, says that we are chosen exiles. Chosen by God. Our, our citizenship is elsewhere. Temporarily living somewhere. Sojourners. Awaiting our true and permanent home. Two different perspectives that illustrate what, what Paul is saying here in Philippians. It, it, it's common, at least in American Christianity, for this to be inverted. For Christians to see themselves first as Americans and second as Christians. Now, nobody will say that. Like, nobody will, will say that that's true of them. But functionally, that's the way that it plays out. That we cling to that which is nearest to us. To that which we can see around us. But, but as true citizens of heaven, we, we never, we should never uh, feel fully at home here. We should always feel a sense of, of wandering. We are citizens of another place. And everything else flows from that citizenship. That is our identity. That's the way that we evaluate everything around us. That's the way that we align our priorities. The next description of those on this second path is, uh, Paul says, eagerly awaiting Christ's return. During my uh, formative years in the Christian faith, the, the Left Behind books were all the rage. Uh, but what's unfortunate about much of that discussion that came from that time is that there was very little anticipation of Christ's return and a whole lot of confusion and dread and drama that became associated with it. And then I read the scriptures, and that doesn't seem to fit, that confusion, that drama, that dread doesn't seem to fit with what the scriptures teach. Paul says that the attitude of the Christian is one of eager anticipation for Christ to return. We pray, come Lord Jesus, come rescue us, come set us free. We long for him to come in glory, to come and make all things new, to come and fix all that's been destroyed by sin to finish what he started those those walking this second path are our heavenly citizens are eagerly awaiting Christ's return and then a third they find their hope in the promise of a resurrected and glorified body Paul says that that Jesus by his power when he comes will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That, that word lowly could be uh, translated as humiliated, humble. He will transform our humiliated bodies, our humble, our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. If anybody tells you that they fully understand that, they're lying to you. But none of us can wrap our minds around what Paul says here. But we know that this 
body, this body broken by sin and by disease, will be replaced one day with a body that exists outside of the power of sin. We can't even comprehend that. First Corinthians, Paul says that the perishable will be clothed with the imperishable. That the mortal will be clothed with immortality. In Romans 8, we read of a, a, an inward groaning, waiting for, Paul says, the redemption of our bodies. In Revelation 7, we read of the promise of no more hunger, no more thirst. We can't understand that. But we long for it. Our, our, our hope lies in these promises that this body one day will be replaced by something far better. Heavenly citizenship, eager anticipation for Christ to return, a, a deep sense of hope in a, in a resurrected and glorified body. These are the things that mark those walking on that second path. Just think about the contrast between these two paths. One marked by self-worship, the other self-abandonment. One eagerly longing for desiring, hungering for more and more and more, and one is placing all of its hope in the promises of God. Uh, but here's the thing. One of these paths is our natural direction. We're on it from birth because of our sin. The second path, the path of heavenly citizenship, eager anticipation, deeply rooted hope is only accessed through the cross. If those on the first path are enemies of the cross, those on the second path, we might say, are just simply at the foot of the cross. And it's only at the foot of the cross that we stand firm. Any other standing, any other ground is shaky at best. But at the foot of the cross, we stand firm. Why? Because we're not standing in our own power. We're upheld by the Savior who hung on that cross. We only get there through repentance, through turning from our own strength, through turning and abandoning our own path, and embracing the forgiveness and the promise of God. So church... Stand firm. Stand firm in your heavenly citizenship. Focus not on earthly things, not, on, uh, not obsessed with the affairs of today, but focused on the eternal. Stand firm as we eagerly await Christ's return. And stand firm in hope, the promise of resurrection. Stand firm always knowing that it's only in his power. It's only in his grace that we are even able to stand. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, uh, we give you thanks today for your great love for us, that while we often are so focused on earthly things, that, that you in your mercy point us and call us back to the cross. Lord, forgive us for our, our pride Forgive us for being prone to wander. God, give us strength to stand. We thank you that even when we fall, you are faithful. We find you merciful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.